we don't have cash to continue operations and we expect to fold in the next 12 months. Some of these companies, Dougals, a flying taxi that's not yet approved. I mean, this sounds cool. Sounds they- cool should be your, your number one investment criteria. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. I bring to you today, my friend, I bring to you today some optimism. Cool, I guess. You don't, li- you don't like it? I mean, I like realism. I like optimism, actually. Do you know if you think happy thoughts and like... Uh have a smile on your face you're actually you actually will be happier no if you you constantly think happy thoughts and have a smile on your face you get locked up (laughs) have you ever have you ever seen either the movies the dark knight or joker laughing all the time all (laughs) kinds of smiles okay well i like that i'm smiling right now i hope i don't end up locked up i'm pretty excited to be here we'll see i'm specifically talking here today actually let me back up because we always skip it before we before we dive in, because I'm, I'm anxious to dive in. Before we dive in, though, we'd love it if you went and rate and reviewed the podcast. Uh, remember, you can go to skippydougals.com for all your Skippy, Skippy and Dougals Talk Investing podcast needs, uh, one-stop shop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Optimism. There was an article written this week by Jason Z, because I can never remember if it's pronounced Zweig or Zwag, but he's awesome. And so Jason Z wrote this article in the Wall Street Journal called How to Weather This Stock Market Storm. And so I click on this thing. Let me be honest. I click on this thing. And I'm like, there's going to be another article about people being stupid, about people not knowing what they're doing, right, et cetera. But when I see Jason's name, I go, okay, there's going to be something. There's going to be something to it. This was, it was an article for, to me, article about optimism. He talked to and interviewed people that were uh, part of his investing newsletter, some subscribers. Yep. And they like have long-term philosophies. They believe in things like strong psychology. They believe in things like compounding returns. It was faith. I tell you, I tell you right now, I sprung out of my bed like a champion, excited for what the world could offer because I read this piece. This one, Diggles, I don't really know. It, I don't know that this was my thing. So... I think he cherry picked. He he talked to what four different investors. They all subscribed to his newsletter, as you mentioned, and so I imagine he got three hundred emails, right? And he just picked the ones that he thought told the best story. I don't like this article at all. Are you not familiar with journalism? Like, <laughs> so you, you you think the other the other pieces where they they have one quote from one person that was a hundred percent of of the the stories they got. Can we can we talk some of these portfolios? Well, yes. Can I can I can I continue? You're breaking down my happy place. You're breaking down my happy place, which is fine. <laughs> I actually enjoy it. Fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. So the thing yeah, is, yeah. the thing is, I'm gonna just give you a couple little things here. There was one guy that's held his stock for decades. They said that he made Warren Buffett look like a day trader. How long he holds his stocks. There was a woman that keeps an investing diary where she records her own psychology and asks questions like, if my portfolio were to drop like 20% tomorrow, what do I think my mistakes would have been? 
there's this guy this is my favorite this guy named lyle steelman yeah when you when you think lyle steelman you think fortitude you think strength and so he bought he went out and bought these five dollar little uh, bear and bull like figurines and when the market's going either direction he puts one closer to his computer as he says and i quote to invert everything and protect my portfolio from me this is what i'm talking about these are the people we need up in young eat cherry picks man these are all things that jason <laughs> writes about like on a weekly basis he invert everything that's a munger quote jason's a huge munger fan i mean come on uh <laughs> The holds the stock for 42 years. Yeah. As soon as that email came in his inbox, he's like, I'm writing about that because I write a weekly article that tells people to have a long-term perspective of the stock market. It's all cherry picked. Yeah, but you fell for it. No, I didn't fall for it. I'm glad what he's saying, what I believe Jason is saying is he's saying all you hear out there in the world is how people be cray. Can I show to you that there's non cray in this world? He's saying there's hope. Be optimistic that not everyone is buying YOLO call options on AMC and hodling until they lose their house. I I should have emailed in because the boy, the boy, he's 68 years old, the orthodontist, <laughs> Jim Woods, right? I, I want people to break down my portfolio of their podcast, but his current core holdings are Apple, Apple, the computer company which he's had for 25 years yes the reason i had to clarify is because his next main holding is computer services so if i said apple and then said computer services you're gonna think that was the same company which he's held for 42 years and then he has nvidia in there video i want to talk to jim i mean jim what's your philosophy here apple and computer systems you've held those for decades and then you got nvidia this garbage up in there I mean, <laughs> come on, Jim. Give me a call. Jim, you want but to come on the pod? I think the question is how long has he held it? Because NVIDIA has been public for over 20 years. And so if he's held it for that That's long, very it kinda, you know, it fits. We should we should get him up on here. <laughs> I, don't know. I appreciate the optimism. And I'd love for people to tear my portfolio to shreds on I, their podcast. It's kind of but, what I try um, and do. Yeah, perfect. No, it was it was good. The Jason's so talented and one of his best talents is taking a contrarian point of view and bringing an optimistic take when things, you know, when there's fires in the streets, it's a good article. I just feel like it's cherry picked. It's definitely a cherry picked, cherry picked to bring me joy. And I am okay with a world that is cherry picked to bring me joy. Yeah. You got a t-shirt, don't you? That just says, uh, (laughs) I'm okay with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay <laughs> with cherry picking. <laughs> as long as it brings um, me joy. All right. Okay. Go and go into your fishbowl. What's in there? Well, hold on. You didn't you just mention YOLO stocks? It's part of the Jason article. This uh, is yeah. the thing I love this week. There's an article that breaks down the you only live once portfolio. Now everyone has their own definition of the yellow portfolio. But what the crazy high flyers have been saying, and Dougals might fall into this camp. Actually, you don't, but sometimes and you're bullish of bulls with a price to earnings ratio of 232, which we were talking about for Shopify the other week. You're going, hey, those those metrics don't matter for me. Think about, we actually had this conversation when you were saying, 
that I would trade in and out of Amazon and you'd buy it and hold it, right? So Counterpoint Funds did a really cool analysis. It came out in February of last year, actually, but they brought it back out with all the craziness that's going on today. And they did a simple philosophy. They said, at December 31st, 1999, the height of the dot-com bu bubble effectively, they were going to backtest the strategy. The strategy was really simple. They would buy every money-losing company on a U.S. exchange with a market cap greater than $1 billion. The reason for that, Dougals, I'm sure you get it, but for the listeners trying to follow, is those are going to be your high growth. Those are going to be your well-funded, large, high-growth companies, right? That's the Facebooks in their early stages or the Amazons. It's these companies that are sacrificing profitability for growth at that point in the cycle. And the optimists about that type of company will say, oh, yeah, well, Look, I know you get a lot of companies that struggle in that subset, but you also get Amazon.com, right? Amazon.com is going to go up 100 times. So it all comes out in the wash. They did exactly that. So they bought those companies in their back tests, and they waited 20 years without taking any action at all. They didn't buy more. They didn't sell. They, they didn't even reinvest the dividends. And then they looked 20 years later and said, Whose hypothesis is right? Did we make tons of money or not? What do you think happened? Well, I read it. So the answer is, <laughs> it was worse then, but not incredibly far off of the S&P 500. Compounded, you get a, like less, much yeah. less money because it's over 20 years. Um, but it was like half a percent, I think, difference yeah. between... S&P 500 total return during that period, basically 20 years since the dot-com crash. 290%, which is 6.7% annualized. And then they did uh, equal weighted and a market cap weighted strategy came in fairly similar. 6.2% uh, or 6.1% annualized returns. The equal weighted strategy is slightly better. I guess this is just confirmation bias for me, Douglas, but it's like, this is what I always say. You get those high flyers and the probabilistic outcomes of the ones that go to zero or that you lose significant money on is too strong of a counterbalance for the amazon.coms. So they broke down the subset based on number of stocks by performance. And almost a quarter of these stocks they purchased went down more than 90%. The counterbalance to that is the 3% of stocks that went up more than 5,000%. But there's just too much on the negative side. The, the companies that don't make money often continue to not make money. I, I think that that's true. This is, here's, so when I read this, I'll just say this. I really wanted to know what their methodology was in more detail, and it didn't, it didn't clarify that for me because it, it was surprising to me that it was even this high. And so I was curious about what they did for, to counter survivorship bias, meaning what they did to make sure that the companies that were around back then were included even if they aren't around now like i just want to i wanted to make sure that 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 happened um as one point because it like it didn't it just didn't quite calculate for me to be honest i also wanted to know what the uh what the overlap of those companies was with the s p 500 yeah. um which wouldn't be it's not going to be huge overlap like i can i can probably say that for sure but i was still curious as to whether like Amazon wouldn't have been on the S&P 500 at that point, for example, but which of the 
the larger performers were also in the SAP. I just wasn't sure. So they were like, I had some questions, but it, it's interesting to look at. That's fair. I think my high level point, but having a stock list of, of each of these names based on returns would be really interesting to see. My larger point is if you look at their breakdown 20 years later, effectively, this is an estimate, 20% of the stocks they pick made were worth more 20 years later than they were when they bought them, right? So those odds, like I, I go back to the Shopify conversation we had yesterday or a couple of weeks back, right? I mean, yeah, Shopify could very easily be one of these t up 10,000% in the next 20 years. But I just think there's a very small probability of that being the case. And the other, the related point to this, and I think they stated this in there, is this is what you get if you bought all of them, 100%, yeah. right? If you try and do stock picking within them, more power to you is basically, is kind of what it's saying, because you you have the one in four chance of getting the 90% down, right? I think that's, it's related yep. to what you're saying, yep. but it's kind of like, uh, I think it was, uh, it was Cliff Asnes, right? That was responding to this on Twitter. And because some somebody was like, well, if you had Amazon, then you would just choose Amazon. Like, why would you even go with the rest of them? He's like, okay, transport yourself back to that time. What about your psychology is going to make you say, okay, these other 50 stocks that I own, now nah, I'm just going to get rid of those and, ju and just choose Amazon. Like, I'll just keep Amazon. Yeah. yeah what, what's realistically, like, what is going to cause that versus even if you said, I'm going to get rid of all these and bet on a stock, why would that be Amazon? I could go just make make sure that you you end up choosing that stock because it could very well be many of the others, right? It could have been Cisco. You could have said I'm gonna bet on Cisco, which still hasn't reached its price that it was right at that time period. So well, and on top of that, you I think it's kind of sexy or something to be like, oh, I I really like uh investing philosophy that is gonna help me find the next Amazon and grow with it. Well, the one that's probably overlooked because picking the individual stock is nearly impossible. Picking a subset of high growth stocks like the YOLO portfolio we're talking about here probably makes you less than the S&P. Maybe you should buy the market. <laughs> Maybe you should keep it super simple and wait for the next Amazon to show up and ride those gains because they will have an outsized impact on your portfolio when something becomes one of the world's largest companies and grows 10,000% plus, right? Yeah, you have a, you have 100% chance of picking Amazon there if you buy go. the market. You heard it here yes, first, you people. Do. You heard it here <laughs> first. <laughs> What's in your fishbowl? <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to take a little bit of a a trip into your world. Not really your world, but something you bring up around crypto sometimes. And just a little bit of a trip because there was one sentence even that I read that got me going. There's this article in the Wall Street Journal about Terra USD. We mentioned Terra USD, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and talking about how it was supposed to be pegged to the dollar using algorithms. It was no longer huge crash, right? So this article is about people that had put their life savings into, uh, into Terra USD, thinking that this was going to be a solid, stable bet. It wasn't in the end. So all that aside, here's you, you can talk more about that if you want. Here was the thing that caught my attention. At the beginning of this piece, it says that TerraUSD was touted as a blue chip 
coin. And so my brain first, actually, let's be honest. My brain went to Nick Nolte and Shaq. But after that, my brain said, blue chip. Like, how is that possible? And so I said, you know what? You know what, Dougals? Do you even know what a blue chip is? Maybe you don't realize what a blue chip is, but you think you do. <laughs> so I went to my friend Google and I said, let me just make sure that my definition is correct. So I Google blue chip. Here's what comes up. A blue chip is a stock with a national reputation for quality, reliability, and the ability to operate profitably in good and bad times. None of the boxes are checked. Like whatever the opposite of a blue chip is, what's the opposite of blue? Red. Okay. What's the opposite of chip? Cracker? So it's like a like a red cracker? Not I don't a cracker. Know, I, I, don't know, I don't know what this is. Yeah, there you go. I don't know what this is. But anyway, I was kind of like, this is part of the issue. And it relates to me to a, a macro point. You know, we talk about when um, it's like what a... Uh, Bill Gurley was saying, if people, people are going to be surprised because they haven't seen this kind of thing before. If you look at your valuations the past few years, similar. If you haven't been through the ups and the downswings, you start calling Terra USD a relatively recent invention, a blue chip. Sorry, I stepped down. It's, no, listen, you're totally right. Man, I often buy companies that have been around for, I guess I shouldn't say often. I kind of do, though. Buy companies that have been around for 100 years. You can call those a blue chip in most cases, right? They've weathered some storms. They, have. they ha haven't been around for 36 months or maybe a decade if you're OG in the crypto space. This article is heartbreaking. I mean, it basically details the people that lost their life savings. And um, so I want to be sympathetic and kind to that. But I, I think there is a larger point here that doesn't even relate to crypto. I thought about this article a lot over uh, the past couple of days. Um, so there's a guy named Keith uh, Baldwin. He's a 44-year-old surgeon who lives in Massachusetts. I bet this guy's super smart, genius. I bet he's super hardworking too. Unfortunately, that doesn't always translate to being a good investor. So he was he had about 200k, and just looking for a place to make a decent return. He leveraged a service called Stable Gains. Man, I hope these people get sued. Actually, I don't hope that, but. Stable gains is the opposite of what they provided. Let's just say that stable gains <laughs> was a, a crypto company that basically said, Oh, we're going to look at the yield farming out there. And we're going to basically automate putting people's money in ways that maximize the amount of return that they get from yield farming. Um, gosh, I don't want to do a 10 minute breakdown on yield farming for those who don't know, but in decentralized finance, it's a way to, like build a bank without the bank actually being there kind of well i think what most people forgot is that the higher the return is almost always correlated to the greater the risk so this isn't moving money from one bank account to another that's entirely backed by the federal government and the fdic right there's nothing like that in the crypto space uh, it is the Wild West, as we said multiple times. This stable gains provider was moving his life savings between different coins to maximize return. And guess where they ended up? In the one that was paying 15% yields, which happened to be the one that was most risky, which is the anchor protocol that tied to Terra USD, which tied to Luna. And just the fact that I have to mention three coins to even 
try to explain this tells you how much hogwash there was there. He lost his life savings because of it. And he's not the only one. This article references like five other people. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah, it is. I mean, because to your point, the the article wasn't talking about at least the profiles that it highlighted weren't YOLO investors. They were, at least in, in what it stated, they were people that were looking for something that they believed and was advertised as stable for them. Yep. Uh, and there was one, at least one person, I can't remember who it was in there, who said that they took an investing course. And the investing course, this was recommended to them, right, by the investing course. And so they probably thought that this was, it was a, a new age, you know, like Charlie Munger is curmudgeon that's saying that this stuff is garbage, but that's, that's old. That's the old style. This seems like the new stability, right? When banks aren't, are no longer paying me a lot, like this, this is what the next generation is. And so I, it, it's, it is like, it's really, really sad. I'm not sure how many people drink a cocktail while listening to the Skippy and Diggles podcast, but I hope there's a few. And if you have a cocktail, I want you to pour something out for this 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 guy, Brian Anderson, a 45-year-old former teacher. He took an online investing course. First of all, if you take an online investing course that encourages any of this behavior, I want you to throw your computer out a window or something and demand a refund. After that online investing course, he took out a loan for $95,000 against his home and invested in crypto. What investing course is this? Because we need to shut them down, Dougals. It's incredibly dangerous. Bottom line. It's terrible. It's frustrating. It's terrible. Um, it's terrible. And it wasn't to uh, to the where I started this around the the blue chip comment. To be clear, I wasn't saying that the individuals that were investing were calling this blue chip. It's like it's how the I'll call it the industry um, seemed to be talking about this. Maybe that investing course right was calling yeah. this blue chip and that's messed up because these it, folks it thought always, they were doing the I, right thing here's where i want to i don't know try and make this a little more optimistic or at least have a a key point out of this i think these people one they thought they were in a stable coin so they thought they weren't gambling as much as they would be if they were in a in a bitcoin or a ethereum or something else right and two they most of them were kind of like conservative, thoughtful. They were just reaching for yield. And I think that's the important point to take away. Regardless of what asset you're in, if you're reaching for yield, you should ask yourself what risk is associated with that. Because that's what really happened here. They could have been in a lot of other places, even in the wild west of crypto, and not lost their entire life savings. Really agreed. Reaching for yield, reaching, reaching in general, whatever is following yeah. that is, uh, is generally not positive and related. It may not sound related, but it is in my head. So I hope it's helpful for anybody out there. In the four hour work week, I believe that's what it was in the Tim Ferriss book, the four hour work week. He talks about how you don't need to recoup money that you've lost in the same way that you lost it. And I think that is such a valuable lesson. Uh, and he he's mostly an angel investor when it comes to investments, at least what he talks about. I'm sure he has public market investments, too, but in most of what he talks about. And so what he was saying was he if he invests in this startup company and loses money, 
a natural human reaction is one to say, okay, well, let me double down on these other startups then. Yeah. But he's saying, actually, you could like rent out a room in your home. You can decide to like get another job, right? Like there's other ways to make up the money. Look at the money as a separate entity than the, the medium in which it was lost. And I think that that's one, there's truth to it, bottom line. And two, I think psychologically, it's super healthy getting back to the reaching point because it is easy to say, I lost it in this stock, so I'm going to invest in that stock. But if you just separate out the money from the medium again, you go, all right, I've lost, I'm making up a number. I've lost $500 over here. Just how can I get $500? Well, yep. one, I don't have to get it tomorrow. So maybe, yeah, I'll pick up a second job. And over the next like three months, I'll be able to get it back, whatever it might be, right? I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. But I think that's a, it's a really important psychological concept. Yeah, that reminds me of gambling. Like, if you lose 500 bucks at the blackjack table, I'm not sure that the best way to make 500 bucks is to stay at the blackjack table. No, go to the poker um, table. <laughs> that, that wasn't what you were after? Not in my world. I mean, I also think that, you know, I'm weird, right? I, I tell people if my portfolio goes up too much, that makes me almost more concerned. Because typically, if you can go up 100% a year, that means you can easily go down 100% a year. And that's not the game I'm trying to play, right? I just think that's valuable to think about that the more volatility you're seeing in your portfolio feels good on the positive side. But that probably means that you have a lot of risk and it that might come back to bite you. It's important to understand your own psychology there as we always talk about. Because my, my psychology when it comes to the stocks that I pick, which is the smaller part of my portfolio, is closer to what you just stated. Yeah. Like I have zero, not zero, but near zero psychological concern when something falls a bunch to thinking about getting in or buying more. And so I have yeah. to, knowing that, I, have to, I also have to protect that, right? To, to know that. But on the, I get mostly concerned with things that are, selling out the was or um, rising out the was easy. Like that's where I'm kind of like, oh, oh, but the good news is that that is a smaller part of like the portfolio. And most of my buying and selling is told to me to do by an algorithm. And yes. so therefore I have like the triggers and if it doesn't hit that, then it, you know, right. It doesn't. Um, Cause something like a, even going back to what we talked about, you know, or that I was talking about with Amazon that you mentioned before around like buying and holding it forever. In my like model portfolio, it would have been sold at some point. And if well, in fact, I, I sold Amazon a couple of years ago, as you probably remember, yeah. whenever that was. Um, but it, but I, I probably like may have sold that prior. Um, you know, if I if I chosen to, unless I told myself at the beginning that I never would. And there are some stocks that I have, like I've invested in, and I said like this is a never sell. It's a small group, but my point is to never sell them, and like that's my psychology game. I don't even pay attention to what the gains are in them because I just know I'm never going to sell them. So what's the point of knowing um, outside of when I you know, do my quarterly calculations and stuff, but it's, that's it. So there's two things there, maybe three. One is how does no brokerage, at least no brokerage that I'm aware of, not allow when you make a buy or sell to add little notes that are like front and center anytime you look at the stock price and also anytime you try and buy or sell because all of us that do that have your methodology have to like take notes by hand or on our you know web our tracking or whatever 
that'd be so valuable to have a little blurb that says like, this is my investment hypothesis or this is never sell. And then on top of that, Jason Swag, our boy, has written about this. And so has James O'Shaughnessy. But a lot of people have tried to pitch this idea of you actually build a safety mechanism into the brokerage. So you say, I'm not selling this stock for 10 years and you check a few boxes and the thing actually won't let you sell the stock for 10 years. It's never gained mainstream adoption, but I'd be down. I'd be down for both those things because it would simplify my process instead of having to look three places, it all be right there on my brokerage account. It's like the cookie, you know, the cookie jars or whatever that you yeah. put like a timer or something on. You need some kind of fail safe, I guess, on it. It's like, no, okay, come on, Charles, Mr. Schwab. I'm losing my house. Like, can I please sell? I know I said I wasn't going to sell. No, I'm joking. But well, there, but there even one of those, you could safe. hit a box and it could wait 72 hours, you know, like just to yeah, help the mental exactly. psychology some kind of a some kind of a mechanism that doesn't make it dead simple um i as yeah. much as we've talked about i love uh robin hood's ui ux it's like it's it's quite a great experience um and for long-term hold investors you should probably um, kind of have an inverse relationship between your investment time horizon and the ease at which it is to use your uh <laughs> You're like your investment system, so long as it's understandable. Uh, but if if your psychology matches, that's mainly for like that could be its own failsafe. Like for a long period of time, I couldn't even figure out how to log into PayPal, right? Like PayPal's fraud mechanisms were so strong that I couldn't get into the thing. If that was my brokerage account, like if that was like my 401k or something, they'd be like, well, I guess I'm not changing that for a few years. So, oh, uh, and then here's the other thing I mentioned I have uh, multiple brokerages accounts as as I'm sure you do too. And so one of my rebalances is coming up early June. So I ran my quantitative model. And for those who are new to the podcast, my quantitative model is a deep value, um, Benjamin Graham based philosophy with a few twists to modernize it. Amazingly Dougal's, despite the fact that the S&P is down almost 20% from the last time I ran this, there's actually less stocks meeting the screen than there were at the beginning of the year. I, I'm a little surprised by this. So hit us up at Skippy Doogles on Twitter or skippydoogles at gmail.com. If you want a breakdown of that, we might send it out to premium subscribers if you're interested. If not, we'll just carry along. But um, really fascinating. I was kind of excited thinking a bunch of stocks might hit that screen. And basically, there's two US stocks that are in the deep value territory. There's some other deals out there, but for one reason or another, they don't have... Uh, the consistent track record or growth I'm looking for, or they have more debt than I'd like. It, it's fascinating to me. And the stock market's not down that much. True. In the grand scheme of things. Right. Well, and have, especially after this week when it rebounded a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Because you, you have all these like high flyers that we've discussed that have dropped a heck of a lot, but the markets, the market overall is only down like what, 13, 15%, like something like that, yeah. which is like standard, like um, for a drawdown. So, it, it, it could be that those stocks might even be up a little bit, right? Or staying the same while the high flyers are down. And so, yeah, you're not seeing as much. That's unfortunate, though. I would have hoped that you would have seen a little more. Yeah, I was getting excited for some deals. Um, and it, I think I'm going to end up in the acquisition space or other spots because there's just, you know, I talked about the cash backstop that I like. And so a lot of these stocks that would hit a deep value screen just don't go down that much because 
they're already super cheap. Truth hurts. Yeah. So can we talk? Like, can we continue on the speculative train and talk Peloton? That we can with the force of you a thousand. You know how kings. we just talked about Terra USD being a blue chip in quotes crypto. I think yep. people got confused, including the management of Peloton, and thought Peloton was like this blue chip stock that had been around for a hundred years. It was like the new Exxon Mobil or something. I, I don't know sounds... if you do. I don't know if you do uh, like neck exercises when you're working out. Do you? No. Okay. Well, even if you did, you wouldn't have to for a week just by reading this article. Because I was reading this article and my whole whole time, my head was just going back and forth, full neck exercise for like eight <laughs> minutes. I got, didn't need to do anything else while my head shaking. All right, go on. They made every mistake you can make. Like every mistake you can make. At the top, they had extreme overconfidence to the point that they decided to build a $400 million manufacturing facility, literally at the peak, like three months into COVID, right? And their CEO was asked on a conference call about basically their supply chain capacity. And he said, overbuilding supply chain capacity, that's a term that's never come up in a Peloton senior leadership room or boardrooms. This is a September 2020 call. This this made like I'm the, interrupting because this made me want to throw something. There uh, there is a there is a difference between saying we had the discussions, realized that the risk you know wasn't like the risk didn't match the reward or you know whatever I don't know whatever it might be like there's too much out there too much opportunity. This has never come up. Exactly. This is uh, someone screaming about this. Like this is outrageous. Yeah. Your what job, are you talking about? Your job what are you talking about? This company is supposed to. You're supposed to see all the risk around the corners. Like your 10K should talk about all the risk to your company. One of which is overbuilding your supply chain capacity in the peak of all peaks for home ex exercise equipment. Like there's never going to be anything like COVID for the hottest home exercise company of a generation this is bubble on top of bubbles he continues we feel like there's such a massive opportunity that we need to invest heavily in the supply chain for years and years to maintain it when you say normalize coming out of covid we don't see that they can't give away bikes now their market cap's basically the size of like a bike Actually, I'll give you the real numbers. It went from $50 billion to about $5 billion. That it did. And when we've discussed Peloton a little bit here, like in the last six months or so, one of the things we've talked about is how what's interesting about this business from a business perspective is the low churn rates on the subscription business. Yeah. Right? How are you going to look? at your own business and say, oh, you know what's interesting about our business? Low churn rates on subscriptions. Let's quadruple down on hardware. Like how, 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 how are you gonna do that? Because not only there's the Ohio manufacturing plant that you mentioned, not only did they do that, yeah. but they also bought another company, another um, stationary bike company, Precore, for their manufacturing capability as well. And look, when you're inside of a company, I. I know that things are not this flippant and it's not like this easy to figure out strategy. And I also know that it is because you got to boil things down to simplicity 
at times. Like things are often not that complicated, but it's hard to see the simplicity, but you got to break it down. I mean, sometimes it is that simple. This thing looks really interesting and is awesome. Maybe don't triple down on this other thing that isn't the thing that looks pretty phenomenal and awesome. So, because other people will see it. Your competitors are going to see that same thing and then they're going to double down on the stuff that you've yep. proven makes sense. Well, and what happens when you make great profits, make great returns, competitors flood the space. So everything is meaning reversion, Dougals. Like, just let's change the name of the show already. Okay, here's... <laughs> no, hold here's on, what, no, no, no. Our producers <laughs> say no. Here's what management and more confident companies did. All right? Uh, at Procter & Gamble, they decided not to permanently expand toilet paper <laughs> factories. I laugh because... Because... Why would you expand? This is common sense. Like, there's only so many people using the restroom. That didn't change over COVID. Same with people buying exercise bikes. You don't, you, okay. At, let's see, Clorox and Honeywell, as well as 3M, added shifts and retrofitted facilities to produce more. And Clorox added capacity through contract manufacturers. All these things are very reasonable ideas to get through a spike. Exactly. Blue chip. Peloton bought a $400 million facility and another company. They're never even going to use the manufacturing facility that they purchased. And they're now so strapped for cash that they think they might run out of cash at the end of the year. And this is also where we talk about debt here. And I like to expand the definition of debt from just financial debt. No, quite literally, they are in financial debt. So here they also have that. But I also think here there's, to coin a term that won't stick, there's promise debt. Sometimes it also happens that companies get themselves into where you say some less than profound things on an analyst call, and then you end up having to support that thing because it's harder for you to go against it. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what hit here, but I've seen this happen in other uh, other companies too. I would even say Theranos falls into that camp to a certain extent where you're like, yeah. okay, well, I promised this thing. So now this has to be true in order to support that that's true. And now that, that this thing is true and it's then now I have to do this. And so you end up, you're doing the fifth level thing because of this first like promise or statement or sometimes lie, right. That you told in the yeah. case of Theranos. And I think that that that's like another form of debt that you have to luck your way out of um, at a well, certain point. There's an aspect to that that's promissory debt, but there's also maybe sunk costs fallacies and I, like, yeah, there's so true. much going right. on there. And what, what you're saying, though, is an important point. Like sometimes you just stick your foot in your mouth and it takes mental fortitude to be like, oh, I said something stupid or, you know, like we actually hadn't talked about it. And I said that on the analyst call. And then a week later, we realized we better be talking about this. And we put our tail between our legs and ran home. Like, yeah, exactly. And speaking of some fortitude, I don't know a lot about Barry McCarthy. And I'm not sure how Barry McCarthy is going to lead. It's, it's the new CEO at Peloton. Okay. I'm not sure how Barry McCarthy is going to lead Peloton to the future. Don't know anything about that. What I do know is this one quote that Barry McCarthy says, and I support it. So along the lines of what you're saying, Barry McCarthy, new Peloton CEO says, I don't care particularly why they thought that COVID was the new normal, except insofar as to inform me of who should be on the bus. <laughs> I'm going to translate that. 
for a sec, just in case it sounds a little, little bit like jargon. It does not matter to me what they were thinking. It's just good to me that I know who was thinking it so I can get rid of them. The really fun part about this is our podcast was uh, was going at that time. So I can go back and listen and maybe I said um, some stupid things here. Uh, it happens. But at what point did anyone in the world in 2020 think this is normal? The, <laughs> the, the constant... You can't even laugh because 2020 was so terrible. The, the constant thought in my mind about that whole year, which was chaos and not fun, was this is not normal. And if this is anything close to normal, we're in big trouble. I can't imagine a company being like, oh, this is how it is now. This is... the No, and, and I, I don't know... Well, we didn't have the pod in 2020, right? And oh, so, good point. Good so point. We, couldn't, we couldn't have recorded then. But we did talk a decent amount about uh obviously because everyone did right about what was happening at that time and i can recall almost the opposite conversation (laughs) that we had once which was it was some version of this i'm obviously not going to get it verbatim it was some version of this wondering how much of this will be like new normal like how much will stick and how much will not stick right people staying home exercising at home etc and then what we said i'm gonna say we because who knows who said it but it came out in the conversation what we said was if you look historically, you can see like the prior example of a pandemic that was this bad was the quote unquote Spanish flu, right? In 1918, 1919. And after that is when we invented like mass commercial aviation. After that is when all like the mass gyms came around. After that is when travel really started to like, like take off, right? Like, so, so if you just look historically, we've had another really bad pandemic and invented things to get closer to each other afterwards. And so it's hard to imagine that this would happen now and we wouldn't go back to stuff that's already invented. Like it's just, it's you never know, but it's really hard to imagine that. Humans are social beings. I mean, I can't come up with a good uh, joke to make fun of Peloton and uh, corollary to 1918, but I'll work on it. Maybe next episode. So speaking of the long history of the podcast, right? Back in, uh, I think it's March of 2021, we did a whole podcast on SPACs called The Road to Spectacular Disaster. I think the title's pretty self-explanatory, Deagles. I believe it was episode 12. Do you know what happened this week? Wall Street Journal did a breakdown of at least 25 special purpose acquisition companies that have substantial doubt about their ability to operate within the next 12 months. That's about 10% of all the SPACs issued in the past two years. And it's going to continue. This was really easy to see coming. And now basically everyone that's, uh, uh, gosh, I'm being hyperbolic. Uh, A lot of these companies are struggling. A lot of these companies are saying, we don't have cash to continue operations and we expect to fold in the next 12 months. Some of these companies, Dougals, a flying taxi that's not yet approved. I mean, this sounds cool. Sounds they, cool should be your, your number one investment criteria. <laughs> sounds cool. They don't make money. They're down more than 90% from where they IP from their peak. Um, there's all sorts of these like this sounds cool. There's one company. Oh, let me see if I can find the quote. 
12 months ago, they came out with their statement to effectively go public and said, there's a clear path to profitability. And now they're down 90% and saying, we don't expect to, uh, we've lost $70 million and we don't expect to make a profit anytime soon. And without additional cash, we are going out of business. They, They probably in the article maybe cut off the end of that initial statement. It's like, there is a clear path to profitability and it is not through our business operations. (laughs) got stuck up with the editors and they just they they missed a part of a sentence and then they got their 500 million dollars to go public and (laughs) cashed out probably well hey listen the people that actually were behind the spac going public and the mergers that happened probably made 20 percent. they got rich the investors got screwed tale as old as time Oh, man, SPACs. And the other thing in here, too, I don't think there were specific numbers on it, but you mentioned the 10% of SPACs that were in this, like, no longer going to be a solid going concern phase. I believe that was 10% of the SPACs that had merged with another company. And so there's this whole other group of, of SPACs that exist out there that I think, I think a SPAC like gets an automatic stamp of like not probably not going to be a going concern from the beginning because they don't have a business model probably, but I don't know how many it is, but yeah, I don't, I think that there's, there's a large number of organizations that are still looking to buy something. That's so, very true. Right. That's like, who knows what's going on there. And they have to buy something to go public to have the financing firms get paid. Yeah. So they're going to buy something that's probably absolute garbage. And the this is going to repeat once again. The one, I don't know all the mechanics of how uh, SPACs work, but there could be one tiny potential silver lining for ones that may have just gotten lucky with this in that the downturn in the public markets is also having an impact on private market valuations. And so potentially there are quality private companies that might exist out there that are now at half off that a SPAC might be able to get into. That's like, you still have those optimistic glasses from the Jason Swig article. <laughs> yeah, we started. I'm, I'm I mean, trying, I'm stretching, I'm stretching, but like I'm trying. Although I don't think it's the high quality private companies that are the ones that are getting slashed by, <laughs> by like 60, 70%. Yeah. It's so, not the ones with a strong cash backstop. So yeah. here's another company from, the article sounds cool it's called view they are a window glass maker that automatically shades based on the amount of sunlight so that reduces cooling costs and especially commercial buildings but could be everywhere which has a massive potential worldwide they got about a billion bucks from softbank and at year end they had about 300 million which means they blew through almost 700 million and right now, they are saying there's growing concern that if they don't get adequate financial resources, basically, they mean more funds, they will not be operating in 12 months. It's a, that's a billion bucks. They went through a, a billion of, bucks. A they don't have bucks. a product. Like It's a lot of bucks. So my favorite guy on earth, Chamath, right? He His pitch with SPACs was like, oh, well, there's all these great deals that private equity firms have access to and VCs have access to that your main street investor doesn't have access to. And we're going to 
break down the doors so mom and pop down the street can make their millions. Maybe there's some truth to that. What's <laughs> What really happened here is the Main Street investors got these crazy high-risk assets that they probably didn't fully understand, and they blew up in their face. There, there are very limited, and maybe when I say very limited, I mean zero times historically in the financial markets where there has been a complex financial instrument that has been used by wealthy people that benefited non-wealthy people. Yeah. So, boom, mic drop. So, what else is in your fishbowl? So there's this piece in Bloomberg called The Tech Route Isn't Just Cyclical, It's Well-Earned and Overdue, which is it's an aggressive title. Yeah, I wrote I mean, that title. I, <laughs> it does have, it does have a value investor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has your fingerprints all over it. Uh, so what this is about is it's looking at the difference between long-term investing and short-term um, speculating. That's what the whole article is about. It's pretty well written. It's by uh, one of the co-authors is Brad Stone. I can't remember. There's I can't remember who the other author is. Brad Stone has written books about Amazon, history of Amazon. He's written books about all like the the larger tech companies. He's a researcher. Yeah, the other author author is Lizette Chapman. Thank you, thank you. And so that that's what this this is about. Everything that is kind of falling apart with tech. I mainly want to bring this up for. A particular reason and it's near the end michael moritz who is of sequoia the, it's a, one of the large preeminent venture capital firms the last few decades this quote by michael moritz says this shock will deliver an almighty colonic to a lot of companies and some will be able to tolerate the consequences and others won't the ones that do will be just fine so we've talked about that concept before when you have hard times this is the whole blue chip thing right when you go through ups and downs you see who comes out the other side and it's it gives, it gives additional potential credibility, confidence, and their ability to weather the storm. What this made me also think about was when we've talked about deals, right, and the potential deals, right, that exist right now in the market. And what I've enjoyed about this, whether or not it's a deal right now, doesn't necessarily matter. It's like conceptually, what I think has been really interesting is seeing what, the com what companies have said what and how they've treated their business over the last two to three years. I guess maybe two and a half years since yeah. um, the pandemic started because you, we mentioned, I think we talked about zoom at one point and saying like, if you had kicked yourself for not buying zoom in March of 2020, well, good for you. <laughs> zoom is at that price again. Right. So and there, it's a better company and it's at the same price. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Cause you get this opportunity right now to look at what some of these companies that have been hit by 60, 70, 80%, you can go back and listen to their, uh, their earnings calls, read read their 10Qs and 10Ks and articles that they've been quoted in the last couple of years and say, how did they run their business during this time? How did they manage their financials during this time? And when I say, so when someone might be thinking this is a deal because it's down 70%, maybe take a look at it and not only look at their current uh, ratios and financial situation, but see how they handled this. And yeah. I think that's really interesting. And his the fact that he he didn't say anything particularly new in this whole sentence, but what struck me was he said an almighty colonic, like that phrase by itself was one. So for those that don't know, you're getting washed out from the inside, right? When you're talking colonic. And so him- <laughs> That losing... actually took me a second to get there. <laughs> yeah. 
him him using a phrase that was that strong is what struck me because I just went, I was like, huh, like who has cleaned their business over the last couple of years? Who took this opportunity to double down on foundational stuff, to strengthen and not to overextend and making sure that as investors, we're, we're looking at that potential point as well. And we can go back and see what they said. Who, who, who came out and said, our board has never actually talked about how maybe this isn't permanent. And like, don't look at those companies. Yeah. And who has said, there's opportunity that exists right now. We're going to invest in infrastructure and also make sure that we're not leaving too much money on the table by increases in demand. Like who, who, who said things like that? And you can start to take a look. So that, that's what it made me think about um, overall. Yeah, I mean, one of a CEO's primary jobs, there's obviously the strategy piece and the motivating and managing people, but another key piece is capital allocation. So I love your point here and Sequoia's point, uh, but you could also see what CEOs chose to issue stock to their benefit at prices that they thought might be unreasonable. When their equity is overvalued, if they issue stock at that point and use the capital raise there to reinvest during the harder times, which could be today or could not actually be for 30 more years. I mean, this decline we're in, this pullback could last many, many years. So we don't exactly know where that is. But yeah, check the receipts. Go see if you're a management team guy, go see which management teams were cutting costs six months ago, rather than waiting for the wave to hit them in the face to tell them they had to cut costs, see who managed their capital smartly, see who thought about mean reversion and understood that COVID was not a normal time. It's a really good point. Yeah. And speaking of all that, one particular company, I'm so curious in 10, let's call it 20 years, AMC, because in so many ways, this AMC lucked out and let's see what their the return that they get right from this is but they went from a point that you stated right a year and a half ago they when they were coming out themselves and being like our business is worthless they didn't say those words exactly but they did not say those words right <laughs> and then you have this meme stock craze that sent their stock to the moon so they went it's not worth anything but it is so like if you're gonna buy it we'll take the capital <laughs> right yeah and now you get you get this rebirth. Like it was a company that at the end of 2020 was saying, we're we're pretty much done, people. Like we're we're doing our gosh darndest, but we're pretty much done. And then you get this surge. You go, all right, somehow, like I walked out my front door and there's like $20 billion for us to, I can't remember what the number was, right? For us to be yeah. able to spend and invest that is undeserving. What do they do with it? I mean, everyone knows you go buy a mining company, right? It's just <laughs> so many synergies. There's... Okay, actually, I take it all back. I forgot they did that. There's so I many take... synergies. I take it all back. <laughs> oh, man. You got anything else going on? I think that's a wrap. Uh, guys, hit rate and review. Please subscribe if you don't mind. Uh, connect with us, skippydoogles.com and a thousand other places. Reminder, we don't do ads on the podcast to try and be fair and neutral, uh, but we do take support through premium memberships. That's uh, supercast.skippydoogles.com. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.